What are we all about? What do we believe as a church? There's three things that we believe. First, we believe that there is hope beyond our brokenness. All of us have a story of being lost. All of us have a story of being found. And um, sometimes in congregations or in church settings, um, you can walk away feeling more miserable than when you showed up, right? You feel like um, you've been pummeled about the head and shoulders. And, and, and so the gospel um, it hopefully does not do that. Hopefully what, the, what you understand about the gospel is that it, it's good news. There's hard news in that good news, right? The hard news of the gospel is you're more broken than you'd want to admit. But that doesn't end there. It's also more loved than you could ever dare to hope. And that, that, the, that the hope that you and I have is that Jesus himself has entered into the middle of our brokenness, and we do not have to sort of deal with our junk before we get to God. The story of the good news, the story of Jesus, is that he's entered in, and now he stands right next to us, and he looks at that pile of junk that we have to deal with, and he says, what do you want to work on today? And let's do that together. So our hope isn't that one day will escape all of this. Our hope is that God is present in it and that our brokenness no longer defines us. What defines us is whose we are and we belong to Jesus. Amen? Yeah. Second, we believe that we are called to trust our risen Savior. As Paul said earlier, what, he is so worthy of our trust. He's God, so he knows more than you do. There's a couple of you who are like, I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> maybe, right? I know there's a lot of wives who are like, please, Lord, let him understand. <laughs> Just let him understand that. Just today. That's my Christmas gift for 2019, right? So, like, God knows more than you do, which means that, and he, has, and he actually has better plans for you than your life. And part of and, and, and knowing Jesus is the process of placing our weight on him and obeying and following his directions because he, he's really good and he really loves you. Third, we believe that we're called right where we are to bring restoration. We're called right where we are to, to have heaven come down to earth. That's our jobs in our families, with our kids, with our moms and dads and brothers and sisters and with our neighborhood and with our community and then in our world. So that's what we believe as a church. And we have so many different ways that this is happening and so many incredible stories about what is God is doing in our midst. And I'm just so grateful for the stories that keep on coming about how God is, is moving in incredible ways in your lives. So we've been in the Gospel of John for so since before last Easter, and uh, it is so much fun. Actually, last Christmas, almost a year now. Is that right? I don't know. Let's just pretend that it is. And for three years, we've been in the Gospel of John, and, and it's just so much fun. Um, we're in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so today is, is, is about resurrection, and, uh, and next week will be about 
Um, I, I want to take three weeks to talk about the resurrection. Today I want to talk about the big idea of the resurrection. Next week I want to talk about how the how resurrection works within the sort of day-to-day, uh, our day-to-day life, especially when it comes to our doubts and our worries and our fears. And then, and then two weeks from now I want to talk about how the resurrection impacts and reconciles our relationships as, as Peter and Jesus have fish tacos together. Okay? So that's where we're going for the next couple of weeks. Now, I have spent 15 years preaching about resurrection and still feels like I don't really understand the resurrection, but even that statement isn't quite right. Look, I I understand the meaning of the word. Resurrection literally means to stand up again. It's the Greek word anastasis. Say that with me. Anastasis. So, if you ever known any Greek people, this is a common last name, uh, Anastasi, and it just means the, the resurrected one or the one who stands up. I'm a dear friend in seminary, Aaron Anastasi. And so for years, I've claimed to understand the practical and theological meaning of resurrection, which is this, that resurrection is new creation in the present tense. Resurrection is God creating something brand new, like Genesis 1, brand new, in the present tense. That's resurrection. Um, And I think I understand the basics of how resurrection works. Read this with me. God does the resurrecting, not you. Does Does that make sense? I think that's how it works. Um, I understand that resurrection is not resuscitation. Uh, I was a hospital chaplain in Philadelphia uh, for a year. Got to see a lot of crazy things. I got to see people resuscitated almost every day. Um, So I was the ER trauma chaplain. And so I would walk in and we were the number two um, puncture wound. So people were stabbed and shot and overdosed. We were the number two hospital in Philadelphia. Philadelphia region is the number one puncture uh, wound capital of the United States. So we were a busy hospital. And uh, this, is Tom, um, this is Albert Einstein Medical Center in, in Philadelphia. And we were at the heart of the inner city. And I I saw people resuscitated so many times. You know, code blue would go off in your pager and you'd run to the ER or to the ICU. And I'm holding hands with a family member and they're doing the whole, you know, clear and the 10 milligrams of epinephrine. After a while, I could predict what the doctor was going to do because it's a pretty basic pattern. Um, My favorite resuscitation was when a lady was brought in. Um, She had a long history of drug use. Uh, and she was combative and struggling on the gurney, and then all of a sudden she OD'd because what she had just taken literally right outside the hospital doors had finally got in her system, and she's flatlined, and the doctors are like, oh my gosh, and so they resuscitate her, and she bolts upright and says, leave me alone! (laughs) Really? It's like... They just saved your life, lady. She did not want to talk to a chaplain, FYI. Uh, so resuscit- resurrection is not 
resuscitation. Resurrection, um, resuscitation doesn't fundamentally change a person's nature or character. They just start breathing again. Does that make sense? Resurrection isn't resuscitation. Uh, resurrection isn't restoration either. Uh, restoration is repairing and repurposing something in old into something useful. So here's um, a piece of redwood. It doesn't look like redwood because it's been outside. Um, it's got grooves in it from the sun and the sand and the, and the wind. Um, and this is a redwood um, that, my, that April's grandfather got in the 1930s. And it's been outdoor furniture for, well, 80 years. This is old redwood. And so April wanted me to take this old redwood and make something out of it. So I made something out of it. And what's cool is it, it's got like all the holes from, the, from where it was attached, right? I'm proud of this one, right? This is a good one. So, oh, come on, come on. So, uh, so this, is, this, is re, this is restoration. I've taken something old and I've repurposed it into something new, right? That's, that's restoration. But resurrection is not restoration. Now, I also understand why I rarely talk about resurrection. I think I've been trained, as, um, as, an, as most of us American Christians have been, to think about resurrection as only a one-time event when I die. Does that make sense? And that's true. Like when we die, we will be resurrected. We will have a body we will be in heaven with a brand new body. And one day heaven and earth will unite and that will be it. And it's going to be really, really good. All of that is true. Okay? But uh, it's true in the same way that, that the good news, the gospel, is, is two things, right? It's I'm more broken than I want to admit. Now, what if I stopped there? Would I get the whole of the gospel? No. If I only talked about, look... Um, uh, you're forgiven your sins and the cross is it. If I only talked about that, I would miss a huge portion of the gospel, which is uh, that also it not only uh, does all your sin go on to Jesus, but all of Jesus's righteousness and good standing now is exchanged and, and given to you. Does that make sense? It, two things essentially are happening. And as Christians, what we do about resurrection is we make the same mistake, American Christians specifically, is that we think that resurrection is only about what happens at the end of time or at the end of our life, but that's only half the story. Yes, that's true, but it's half the story. So today I want to share with you the story of resurrection, the big picture story of resurrection that we see in all of Scripture. But before we do that, we'd better pray because we're going to need his help. Amen? Amen? Holy Spirit, we ask your presence to be here. Protect us. We bind up and silence everything opposed to Jesus that would be seeking to put us to sleep, to distract us, to bother us. Holy Spirit, we give you permission now to speak to our hearts, to change us, to resurrect us. We need it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So three years ago, I was reading the book of Isaiah during my morning devotions, and 
I finally got to chapter 65, which I had never read before. I haven't, I think I've read the whole Bible, but I got to be honest, there's some chapters in Lamentations that I probably skipped, okay? <laughs> but this is the first time, maybe I'd read Isaiah 64, but this is the first time like I actually like read it, right? And um, the verses sounded eerily familiar. Now, I had been reading up to this point, and so I knew the background of Isaiah. And the background is this. Isaiah is writing to Israel in about 575 B.C., 575 years before Jesus, right? Israel has been captured. The Iraqis, they're the Babylonians. They've invaded Israel. They've destroyed the city. It's been a three-year siege. They've taken an entire nation captive. Millions of people marched them across the desert, and now Israel, the people of God, will live in captivity as slaves to the Babylonians for the next 70 years, and Isaiah is writing to them. And he's saying, look, you guys were in this position not because the Babylonians were amazing, but because we've been rotting from the inside for years. We've We've worshipped everything but God. And when the Babylonians came and tested our life, we cracked and crumbled underneath the pressure, not because of them, but because of us. And so this is what Isaiah writes, and it's this vision that God gives Isaiah about what God is going to do, the hope that God wants to give Isaiah. Read with me, Isaiah chapter 65, starting in verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Doesn't that sound familiar? I read that for the first time. I was like, is this? Wait a minute. This is Revelation chapter 21. Like literally John is writing like almost the exact same words verse for verse. So what's going on here? Well, first look at verse 17. See, this is God speaking. I will create a what? I will resuscitate. I will restore. What is the word? Create. This word is repeated three times. Pay attention to that. Anything written three times within close proximity in the Bible is bold, underlined, italicized, blinking, animated, right? Pay attention to this. Okay? So why is this significant, that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth? And then why is God going to create Jerusalem? What's going on here? Well, um, you and I need to understand something about how we think about heaven and earth. Next slide, Sydney. We think of heaven and earth. This, wait, sorry, previous things. This is from the Bible Project, their YouTube channel. Amazing. Go check them out. Um, we think of heaven and earth as two separate places. Right? Earth is on the right, heaven's on the left. The throne there is where God is, and we're down here. It's like that Bette Midler song, right? 
God is watching us from a distance. This is how everybody thinks about horrible. Um, this is how everybody thinks about heaven and earth. Does that make sense? Is that, did Bette Midler sing that one? I'm sorry to bring that up. It just makes me sick every time I think about it. And what, what, what Scripture says is this, is that heaven and earth, next slide, Sydney, heaven and earth have actually overlapped. There's this place of overlapping. This sort of hinge point between heaven and earth, this point of contact where heaven is breaking into earth. Do you know the name of that place where that happens in the Old Testament? Not purgatory. Zion, a.k.a. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the overlap. It's the place where God... Heaven itself breaks into the earthen plane. Does that make sense? So what does it mean that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a brand new Jerusalem? Well, it means this. Number one, Jerusalem is going to rebuilt, be rebuilt, which it will be. Seventy years after Israel goes into captivity, King Cyrus frees them and then helps them rebuild the city. That's what the book of Ezra is all about. The walls are rebuilt. Temples rebuilt, it's beautiful. But it also means that this hinge point, this overlap where heaven is breaking into earth, that something is going to fundamentally change, that God will no longer be kept in one place in the Holy of Holies, but now this overlap, this place called Jerusalem, it will be so significant and so widespread and so, oh gosh, Everybody is going to experience it to the point where that you would describe living in God's presence is he's actually here. It's like his joy is displacing all of my fear and his love is drying up all of my tears and his hope is I don't even remember the bad stuff anymore. Living with God has fundamentally transformed my life. That's the idea of Jerusalem, the overlap, that hinge point. Make sense? So here's what I learned this year. Resurrection is new creation where God dwells with us and is making us new. Now there's more. Writing at the same time as Isaiah, Ezekiel the prophet has a vision from God about how God is going to create us new. And God gives Ezekiel a vision of a valley filled with skeletons baked in the sun, all scattered out the valley floor. And that's us. And God shows up and he breathes life over this valley of dry bones. And all of the skeletons start to come back together again and sinew and muscles formed on them and skin and flesh and everybody's there. And I'm assuming clothes as well. And, and everybody's there and, and God says this. It, well, God says the dead literally stand up again. Anastasi. And God says this, verse 26. Read this with me. And I will give you a new heart. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So literally, God's going to take 
the deadness of our heart and life, that place where you feel absolutely numb inside, where you've written off hope and joy and love and peace and and life, and you've just resigned that life is going to be terrible and lousy, and so you just got to stick your nose down to the grindstone and push through that dead part of your heart. When resurrection comes, God says, look, I'm going to I'm going to take that heart of stone out of you and I'm going to give you a brand new heart with new appetites and new hopes so that you can feel again, yes, the joy and yes, the pain. And how's God going to do this? Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. Oh, How does God create in us new life? Through his Holy Spirit. And he's going to cause us, move us. Literally, it's God is going to take us and shape us to what? Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the idea is this, is that As the Holy Spirit comes into my heart, I'll feel again, and then I'll want to do life different. Like I literally, my appetite over time will change for what God wants. How many of you, like me, have become allergic to the sin that you've dabbled in over and over and over again? Oh, come on. Raise your hand. This is a, everybody raise their hand. Ready? Raise your hand. Okay, good job. Yes. Over time, what ends up happening is that thing that we keep on participating in, that fear that we keep on stoking, that pride, that resentment, that lust, that that greed, whatever it is, life with Jesus is kind of frustrating because you know what happens is the moment that you keep on going back to that over and over and over again, it doesn't satisfy anymore, does it? How terribly annoying. And after a while, you just get sick of it. That is evidence of the Holy Spirit within you. Picking up what God's putting down? Now, if I've done my job right, you're starting to get this biblical scope, this big picture scope of resurrection that you can read from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But I want to zoom in for a moment. What does resurrection look like for us in our day-to-day lives? So yesterday I had the honor of presiding over a funeral for a a good man, but a a man I did not know. Uh, Sometimes the local mortuaries will call me and say, a family would like a pastor, would you come and preside over it? And so I say yes. And so yesterday was one of those days. And this man, Ray, had a strained relationship. Ray was the man who died. Uh, Ray, a good man, had a strained relationship with his son, and for decades they were not able to connect. And for the last couple of years of Ray's life, he had was had this diagnosis. Uh, neurologically, he was starting to fall apart, debilitating disease. And when he was diagnosed with this, his son did something incredible. His son decided that he would take all of the pain of not having a very good dad not having a dad that was all that engaged, he would take all that pain and he would set it aside so that he could connect and forge a relationship with his father. And this son 
chose to visit, the son chose to call, the son chose to love, and the love and forgiveness of this son melted Ray's heart. And they were reconciled. They were able to have hard conversations, and Ray was able to apologize, and his son was able to forgive, and they were able to mend their hearts together and their family together, and this melted Ray's heart in a way that he had never experienced, and it paved the way for his for his nephew to come into his life and to share with Jesus about him. And Ray, who was the guy that was never, ever, ever going to say yes to Jesus, started to trust Jesus and invited him into his life, all because the love of and, and forgiveness of his son melted his heart. So what is this story that I just told you? Well, it's the story of how God dwells with us and how God then creates something brand new as he's in our midst, and how God, when he creates something new, the only way that we could describe that is saying that the dead now stand up again. And how God puts a new heart and a new spirit within us, and that's his work, not ours. Does that make sense? Now, if you told me that same story of a son reaching out to a parent with love and forgiveness a couple years ago, I would have not described it as resurrection. I would have described it as maybe redemption or forgiveness or reconciliation, but not resurrection. Why? Because I didn't think that resurrection happened now. I was stuck on the latter half of the story of resurrection, that it only happens at the end of our life. But this misunderstanding of resurrection isn't new. It actually happened the very first time that resurrection ever happened, and now we're in the book of John. Ready? Read with me. John 20. Oh, next one. Verse 1 and 2. Read with me. Ready? Early in the morning, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. She ran at once to Simon Peter, breathlessly panting. They took the master from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So the tomb is empty. Jesus has been tortured, crucified, killed. For everyone who followed and loved Jesus, resurrection, even resuscitation, weren't options. The Romans are very good at thoroughly killing people. He wasn't mostly dead. Princess Bride reference. Did you get that? Okay. So Mary, was Mary Magdalene, is going to the tomb, not expecting resuscitation, not expecting, um, you know, oh, I'll be better. Not, uh, Jesus is dead. Okay? And Mary is going with spices and oils and wraps to prepare his body. And the disciples are hiding, freaking out, thinking that they're the next ones that are going to suffer crucifixion. And when Mary sees that the tomb is empty and the bodies are gone, she runs to tell Peter and John. Peter and John run back, check it out. Um, Peter doubts. John believes something happens, but doesn't say anything. Then they both leave. And Mary is still there with all her oils and spices and linen wraps. And Jesus is gone. It's like showing up to a party and no one's there. It's like showing up to church an hour early on daylight saving, right? It's like, what do I do? What, what's happening here, right? So verse 11, this is the message translation, by the way. 
but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. Makes sense, right? You go to, that's a place where you'd cry, right? Read with me. As she wept, she knelt, look into the tomb. One at the head and the other at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. And they said to her, woman, why do you weep? This word woman is the word gunai in Greek. It can be translated as woman or it's a term of endearment, like sweetheart. Sweetheart, why do you weep? And so Mary, Peter and John have just left the tomb and she's standing there going, well, what do I do now? And she's looking around and then she goes back into the tomb and then there's two people in the tomb. And they ask her a really dumb question. Well, why do you think I'm weeping? I'm not at Target. I'm at the cemetery. That's what I would have said. But Mary's nicer. And so she, she explains. She says, well, they took my master, and I don't know where they put him. And after she said this, she turned away, and she saw another guy standing there. It's Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Like, this graveyard is crowded at, like, 5.30 in the morning on a Sunday. Like, what is going on, right? And so Jesus speaks to her again. Sweetheart, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? I love this. She, thinking that he was the gardener, said, Mr., if you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. What? So in Mary's mind, Jesus is the gardener. So Mary's thinking, this is the gardener. He's here to mow and blow. <laughs> he wants to do it on the inside of the tomb. So he's taken Jesus, stiff with rigor mortis, and thrown him over the hedges so he can clean out the inside of the tomb. That's what she's saying. If you took him, tell me where you put him. What kind of gardener empties out a tomb in order to clean it? It's a very thorough gardener, or weird, or something. Mary's suspicious and confused. What she doesn't understand is that she's talking to the resurrected Jesus. Like, Jesus literally is the resurrection. Jesus is God in the flesh, making his home 